HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're telling the stories behind iconic dishes. We learn what it will take to save New York's most famous egg cream, discover the importance of the goat neck in the East Village, and take a trip to India for delicious flatbreads. Our customers who come in to get egg creams and t-shirts, they love to talk about their childhood or their teenage years or their college years. I was living in uh, Nepal in northern India. And out there, there's a real famous dish, a classic dish, I should say, is called paya. Parathe Wali Gali, or as it awkwardly translates in English, the lane of the stuffed flatbread makers, is probably one of the most popular food streets in Old Delhi. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I try to get to the heart of what makes people succeed, what is the intersection between ideas, emotion, and action. And today, I have two extraordinary people as my guests. They are the co-founders of Black Food Folks. I have Colleen Vincent, who is not only the co-founder of Black Food Folks, but also the director of culinary community initiatives for the James Beard Foundation, and also Clay Williams, who's an extraordinary photographer. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. There's something about your collaboration that seems like the absolute perfect match, because all those pictures that you take for Instagram and for the events are so beautiful and bring people to life and then your events background and obviously the two of you just embracing a sense of community it's been really exciting to watch you're deep in the food space and I'm curious what was the thing that made you say you know I'm gonna make food what I do because you could have done anything I kind of fell into food 
when I left college, I worked for ESPN for a while, and I ended up working for one of the early food delivery service startups. It was called CampusFood.com. Eventually got bought by Grubhub. I did not make bank in that. But when I left Campus Food, I said, I'm never going to work in food again. And what I find very common in a lot of food stories is that there's never a time where you realize that you're working in food until you're actually working in food. So after years of working for PR companies, marketing companies, a position opened up at the James Beard Foundation and my sister happened to be working for Amy's Bread at the time and had a great relationship with the events team there. And so I ended up working at the James Beard Foundation. What was your first job at the Beard Foundation? Uh, reservations manager. So I got to talk to every single person that sat in the seats at the house. I got to meet the chefs every single day. I worked with a really great um, team of mostly women. So I got to see front of house and back of house all day long and get to experience like all the cylinders that the foundation runs on. Until I had been at the foundation for a number of years, I hadn't realized that I had worked in food before. Uh, <laughs> um, because, you were in tech. You felt yeah, like you were in tech. I felt like I was in tech, but before that, when I was in college, I actually worked in the food service department. In my freshman year, I was actually part of the cleanup crew. It was one of the most rewarding jobs I'd ever had to sweep and mop huge floors and clean hundreds, sometimes thousands of dishes daily. Why was that rewarding? Something about the connection between the mind and the body. I love physical labor. Maybe not so much now, but at the time. It was a great way to kind of zone out, quiet the mind, and feel like I was of service. So it was an experience of Zen. Yes. It was your your practice. It was my practice, and it was free exercise. (laughs) (laughs) Or more like exercise I got paid to do. Even better. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And what about you, Clay? Um, How do I get into food? I mean, I used to always just say I like to eat, I like to take pictures, and so one thing led to another. And that's kind of the short version. Um, I started getting into the blogger world when that all first started in like 2005, 2006. I read that you got inspired when you went to um, see Tom Mylan. Yes. So Tom Mylan, who was one of the founders of Marlowe and Daughters and then um, the Meat Hook, he used to do butchering classes at Brooklyn Kitchen years and years ago. And my wife bought me a, a class uh, to, to go in and to see that, to photograph, and I brought my camera with me. And it was one of the first times I, I documented the process of food. And that inspired me. And so I kept doing that. And, you know, those guys were always happy to let me come in and photograph again. And And how do you feel about the relationship of the photography that you do with the work that you do with black food folks? I think it's uh, actually imperative. It's an integral part of what we do. Place photographs actually make these people real people. I mean, obviously, there's something about a photograph that's archival, that's iconic, but he really captures the personality and the joy that these chefs have in what they're doing. And, you know, we we really make a point of trying to be in as many spaces as we possibly can um, because we want to capture food people in all their elements. You know, we're all in different places, but we're all, like, have the same goals, have the same ambitions, have the same struggles. You can sum that up in a photograph in a way that you can't necessarily sum that up in a blog post or an article or even a quote. You know, I, I love Clay's photographs. 
podcast. I'm actually really glad that we kind of like stumbled upon this journey together because he tells a story that I couldn't possibly capture in mere words. I've always been a little hesitant to call myself a food photographer because I've always felt like it's more than that. Like I've never been a studio guy, you know, and there's some really great studio photographers not detracting that, but I'm, I'm very much about on location, the, uh, getting a feel of a place, getting a feel of the people. A year ago, I had a, I don't remember exactly what set it off, but I had a moment where I got tired of the larger food representation, like, out there. And so on my personal Instagram, uh, I did about a month where I didn't post any food at all. It was just photos of people of color, of women who were queer, just the people who were not usually represented. And starting with that, that's what inspired me to, when we came together with, with Black Food Folks, why, why I had the idea of making that feed what it is. How did you get on this journey together? So Clay and I both have a knack of like attracting people and it's funny because both of us are kind of quiet in our own different ways and we started having a conversation because I work at JBF and Clay has been taking photographs for JBF for a long time. So we started having kind of like nauseous together and it kind of snowballed from there. It, it became yeah. a thing very quickly. It did. Like it, all of a sudden we had a space we had a list of people that we wanted that to invite <laughs> that kept growing, continues to grow yeah. to this day. So we just picked a date right. and then we just did it and it continues to snowball from yeah. there. Clay and I are very much like on the horse cart or the sled, like holding on for dear life. Seriously. But we're very committed to this project that keeps evolving and growing and changing. I mean, for me, it started out with just having drinks with people here or there or coffee with Colleen or just on the side at a dinner or at an event or in the background at a shoot and we'd have these what were those conversations like can you give me would, what did that sound like and what's the tone like angry frustrated 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 Very a lot frustrated. of frustration yeah. but not just frustration there was also a little ingenuity because there's also this is how i'm making it work right, right? I would have drinks with somebody and, and we'd be talking about the industry, talking about whether they're a writer or a publisher or a chef or whomever. And, you know, the conversation would be, this is what I want to do. I can't get funding. Or the folks I work for are not, like, understanding what it is that I, I want to do. Or, or every time I pitch this story, it gets turned into this other thing right. that is, like, explaining black culture instead of just, like, being a part of, like, this is what this is. It just kept, it kept happening, and it was, no matter what industry they were in around food, it was sort of the same conversation. So Can I ask, though, <laughs> the conversations turned from whatever the person was pitching to please represent your entire culture in this medium? Sort of, yeah. yeah. I mean, and and I, what does that mean? Like, what does that sound like? What it sounds like, I mean, ultimately for me is, you know, there's this aspect of trend pieces or like this is only suitable for this time of the year or we can talk about this but not in your way but in our way to make right. it palatable. And the frustration was that the cultural aspects of being black are myriad. There's a whole diaspora here, and even people whose roots are in America exclusively, there are many different stories to tell. Right. There's not one way to do it. And also, like, black people can tell stories outside of being black. Like, there's, right. there are a lot of dimensions. And so people were feeling that they could not be their fully realized, multidimensional selves. And... You know, it's just happening in all aspects, everywhere, right. that we 
we're not allowed to be black and everything right. else. And sometimes we weren't even allowed to be black. So if someone were pitching a story about black food in this region or that region, it would potentially get kicked to February because like that's Black History Month, right? Or it would be turned into a story about, okay, well, this has to be explained to an audience that is primarily white women of a certain class of whatever that demographic is that the, that publication is, is after. And so you have to start from the beginning for everything, right? And it's not just Black folks, it's, you know, I mean... There's the story of the New York Times article a couple of years ago explaining bubble tea. Uh, <laughs> um, it's just like this thing where, you know, if you're not from a particular background, you have to explain everything, like from the beginning, for every story you want to do. And then what happens when you have to explain everything from the beginning is that your particular point is lost because editors care about like space and inches and and right. the meat of the story you actually want to tell is lost because you know you have to start on a kindergarten level with everyone and then what happens is people have an elementary understanding of your culture right. um, and there's no there's incentive no to learn more right there's no depth the meat of what you're the story you're trying to tell is lost and then also um, the onus goes back onto the writer to re-educate the public. And, and at this point, in our food stories, we should expect more from our audiences, quite frankly. We're talking right now about writers, but the storytelling is not different if you're a chef or if you are a photographer or if you are an event producer. If you have to keep explaining why that dish is on the menu or why your decor is a certain way or why your music is a certain, you know, a certain style. Every time you have to explain that, every time you have to go back and undo the things that you want to do as your story, it's the same thing. So we've had conversations with any numbers of people who aren't just writers. This is, the group isn't just about writers or just about chefs. That was the thing that was the big impetus for me was seeing that no matter who I talked to and no matter what their job was, they were having very similar conversations. So what interests me about Colleen, what you said in particular, is people feel like they're done. Hey, got that, understand soul food, move on, check the box, right. and then they can't get to the next step. So in the way you think about it, how do you make that happen for these audiences? So, you know, Clay and I, everything that we do, our intent is obviously to like form a space where people feel safe and supported, but also a place where people are elevated in a way that feels meaningful and intentional and not tokenistic, if that is a word. Um, and what that does is it allows people to kind of grow to what they think the next level of what they want to do is. I mean, the, the questions that we ask ourselves constantly, one of them is that we, you know, when we kind of put panels together and start talking about what we want to do next, we always make a point of saying like, not, and there's nothing wrong with black food, but what we want is a space where everyone is an expert in whatever it is that they're doing. So what we want is not just, you know, not just cultivating experts for other people to tap into, but experts for our community to tap into. You know, we've done a lot of meetups and we've done like our own events and there are more to come. And what has come out of them is kind of a freedom of expression that, you know, people didn't necessarily feel that they have. In terms of who comes to your events, who, who comes? 
Well, so we've had different types of events, so we should be clear. The sort of core event, we've only done two of these so far, but the sort of core event is the community event, which was the first idea, you know, get some people in a room. Our first one happened in February, and, and you know, one of the things just about our, our dynamic is I, you know, my thought had been we get like 10, 20 people in the back room of a bar somewhere and like we'll introduce some folks and that'll be it. And by the time it all happened, I think we had uh, nearly yeah. 100 people. We had 80 RSVPs and 100 people show up. Right. <laughs> That's kind of the reverse of usual, right? Yeah. Usually right. there's right. the 10% drop off, you've got the 20% ad. Yeah, and so when we did that, the thing that happened, and I still think this is possibly one of the most important things we do, there is just something about being in that room one of the things that happens is that we we're constantly told that our story is a minority story our story is one that like does not that is not mainstream it's niche it's an right exactly it's niche it's it's a small part and it has to be explained and when you're in a room where everybody's black and they're not doing the same thing. You've got writers, you've got chefs, you've got line cooks, you've got all these people who are connected. Because it, it always feels like such a small community, and we're always told it's such a small community. Seeing 100 people in the room who all work in food and being able to say, oh, you should talk to Nicole, you should talk to... Chris, you should talk to Craig, right? Like, and they didn't all come from Brooklyn. I mean, right. you know, people came. They came from Harlem. They came from Philadelphia. They came from DC. Like, um, yeah, all Connecticut, um, right. the Midwest. Like, a lot of right. people came because, you know, what Clay and I always talk about um, was that what happens to us is that we're used to being maybe one or two, right, in a room, right, that looks very different. Yeah. And there are protocols that come with that. The two of you have a like dozen years in this space, and in that time at the beginning, you were in really very I mean you just probably still are in majority white rooms. And what did it feel like as a photographer in that space and as a sort of a beard foundation person, whether it's reservationist or overseeing events or whatever, what did it feel like for each of you? I will say this. I By the time I got to the Beard House, I was very experienced of being in those types of spaces. I went to a predominantly white institution. Yeah, same. Um, so, you know, I had those experiences, and I kind of got forged in a fire in college. What frustrated me was that there was a constant sense, and not necessarily from the people that I work with, but a constant, like, what are you doing here, sense okay that happens in those kinds of places. My, um, and I, I blame my father for this, my um, reaction to those things is, what do you mean? Of course I belong here. Um, so, Go dad. Yeah, so what do you mean? Like, I belong here, like I, I belong here. And um, I was very vocal about how I believe that more people of color needed to be not just represented in those spaces, but actually lead in those spaces, it was a lot of conversations um, and a lot of like using whatever small powers that I had to make sure that those things happened. Even though my title was reservationist, even though it was really reservation manager, you know, I did what I could because I felt a sense of social responsibility. And that social responsibility not only comes from like my background and heritage, but you know, a deep em empathy and understanding of, of being in a place where you, you understand that there's more that can be done. And you felt the confidence to do so 
in part because of your heritage, the way you were brought up. Right. I am a low-key agitator, but, you know, just like many of us um, who like to write, I'm one of those people that watches and observes and then looks for the opportunity. The thing about opportunity is that you can just wait, only wait for so long for it to come across. I'm one of those people that I'm going to make the opportunity where I can, you know? You mentioned protocols. Yes. What are the protocols? Oh boy, that is a whole other radio show, Dana. Um, so <laughs> the protocols are always, of course, um, perfect diction, dressing a certain way, referring to things a certain way, not being too emotionally expressive, hanging back and waiting your turn. Um, that didn't happen in the room when we had uh, when no. we had our event. No, no we were loud, we were raucous. We were playing 90s hip-hop, uh, dancehall reggae, soca. You know, the place the place where we had our first event was my dad's tax office turned event space. And if you know anything about Caribbean people, that is a very yes. Caribbean thing it's to happen. Yes. Um, so in the back, there was a large tent. It looked like, as uh, Chef Omar Tate called it, an, a revival tent. It was right. very much a family reunion atmosphere. It was Everybody, a yeah, people brought food with them. They brought booze with them. We were like what? taking pictures everywhere. It was very, it was beautiful, and it was very black. It was yeah. a very black event. And Clay, what about your experience as a photographer documenting? And you're not documenting people who look like you for the most part. White Colleen, I you know I went to predominantly white school. Uh, I went to private school here in, in Brooklyn, um, which was predominantly white. You know, there were four black people in my class out of 60, which is not a big class, but but still, there were four of us. And so it wasn't really foreign to me. You know, and then I went into IT, which was, you know, even more about, like, just white guys, right? And so I knew how to navigate those spaces. That wasn't an issue so much, but... As I, but I'm wondering what you thought, not that could you do it, because obviously you could do it. Right. I mean, honestly, I don't think I noticed at first. Um, I mean, I, I, I photographed, and, and, and this is also because I, I was always photographing different types of people in different spaces. So I was photographing, you know, King at, at Uminam, right? I was photographing other, you know, not just white folks in white spaces necessarily um but there was a lot of that it, it it was one of those things where i just took it as this is this is the way this world is and there are different parts of it and you know my my personal approach to photography most of the time when i'm in the kitchen is to be sort of fly on the wall i want to capture what's going on so i'm i always have a little bit of a wall between me and everything else anyway does this make you want to break down some of those walls more it's actually an odd thing for me. So talking about the event, Colleen had to remind me to go get my camera because I've never had to do both at the same time. So actually photographing things while I'm also sort of hosting is still something I don't know how to do very well. Oh, well, the best part was when I said, I said we got to talk on the microphone. He was like, what? The second time, though, you yeah. couldn't get him to shut up. Oh, but <laughs> it was great because when you see that transformation happen, you, you know that somebody is, like, home. It's been really great because, like, Clay and I, we operate on parallel tracks kind of at different speeds. Right. You know, when I need to kind of slow down and look at something, like, Clay will help me do that. Yeah. Um, when Clay is, like, feeling, like, worried about something, you know, and I'll just be like, it'll be fine. Right. I don't know if it'll be fine, but <laughs> so that seems to, to work. <laughs> 
I think things are going to be fine. Like something goes exactly the way we want it to or even better. Or something is an opportunity for us to learn something and kind of shift gears, you know? Are there any challenges you've turned in your mind to learning experiences that you'd like to share around your work in this area? So, you know, for me, because I was in spaces where not everybody looked like me, the challenges have always been for me to like connect with other people who look like me in a genuine way, which meant kind of stepping outside of my comfort zone. So I I am an introvert and not in like, I am shy kind of a way in more of like, you get me around large groups of people after two hours, it's a wrap and I'm done. So the challenge for me right now is that because of what Clay and I are doing and because of honestly, the really great will that we've generated, a lot of people want to talk to us. And that means stepping outside of my comfort zone because when people want to talk to me, it means now I have to be responsible. And even though I'm of a certain age, I don't always want to be responsible. Sometimes I want to check out. Um, sometimes I don't want to listen. And, and what that has done is allowed me to kind of see where my emotional deficits are and certainly what my fears are. And my biggest fear, I think, has always been being responsible for anyone beyond myself. And that's partly because when you're responsible for other people, that means that you have to be mindful of the way you express yourself. You have to think about what they want and need. And it doesn't mean that I personally lack empathy. It's just that it's not necessarily my strong suit. Certainly this endeavor has allowed me to kind of grow in this area. I still feel very fearful about it. Sometimes I feel like I'm jumping out of a plane without a parachute, but I figure, you know, it's like tandem skydiving. If I don't have the parachute, Clay has the parachute and vice versa. You know, it, it's it's allowing me to grow in an area that I really have had some challenges in. And Clay, what about you? As far as challenges go, I mean, the biggest thing for me is moving from being that fly on the wall to being more involved. Instead of just being there to watch everything, to capture it, to document the moments, but actually like leading that and coming up with ideas instead of just thinking what somebody else should do. That was the biggest hurdle for me was was moving into another another space. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to hear more from two extraordinary individuals who are the co-founders of Black Food Folks. This episode was brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, with meeting and event spaces available for on-demand booking. Looking for the next perfect outdoor location for your next gathering? Host your next event at 100 Bogart's impressive rooftop, just steps away from the Morgan L stop. It's one of the largest and tallest roof spaces in Bushwick, boasting 360-degree views of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. 100 Bogart's rooftop is available for your next networking event, fundraiser, special performance, or photo shoot. There's approximately 5,000 square feet, ample space for up to 100 guests. For more information on hosting an event at 100 Bogart's rooftop, email info at 100bogart.com or call 718-362-3539. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, 
who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe, taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. Welcome back. This is Speaking Broadly. You're listening to Dana Cowan with two great guests, Colleen and Clay. It's called Black Food Folks. Yes. Yeah. As opposed to you have options. Um, <laughs> it could be rainbow. I mean, it could be... It could be all kinds of things. It could be all sure. kinds of yeah. things. Yeah. Tell me why Black Food Folks. I, I mean, honestly, I, I did. we didn't realize until after we called it that, that it stands for BFF. BFF. Best friends forever. Black is a comfortable space for me as a word just because of when I was born and when I came of age. That just sounds right. It's kind of to the point. And I, I like the way it sounds. Um, food, for obvious reasons. And folks, because folks is all-encompassing right. of everyone. Like, right. it's a word that I use instead of, you know, I use just like, hey, y'all, folks. It, it's just everybody. It just, and it sounds like family, right. you know? I wonder if the... In- intention in calling it that is that it's not brown food folks it's right. not no nope we're black we're black yeah yeah well i mean unapologetically yeah absolutely yeah. uh you know one of the things is that there are a lot of people doing different things right a lot of folks doing doing great work in the, the space and so we didn't have to do something for everybody right. we just wanted to do something for us and you know, that's that seemed like the the real area of focus. And there's clearly a need, right? Yeah. You're filling you're filling a need. You've traveled a lot and you've been speaking at a lot of conferences or shooting um, at conferences and events. Do you find the reception to black food folks different or the reception to your message different if you're in Natchez or you're in New York or you're in someplace else? it's only been enthusiastic to the point where people who aren't necessarily black are like, can we come? (laughs) And and here's the thing, you know, we have a welcoming space. And my hope is, I mean, you know, my internal hope is that other communities kind of do the same things um, so that we can kind of, as I said, you know, like form like Voltron and and, and like do all of these things together. But it's a welcoming space. I mean, but what's the answer to that question? Sometimes. It depends. I mean, we have our community events, which are very specifically for us. FUBU, Um, for us, by us. Right. Um, But then we host other events. Um, We have panels like we did at the uh, Food Writers Workshop this spring. We've got events like the Food and Grooves yeah, um, festival, DC. which is happening in D.C. Um, later this month. There are different types of events, and so we're happy to have the support of everybody, but there are certain types of events that are very much about gathering the community of very specific people, and it's not like a private members only for everything. It's just certain things where, you know, one of the reasons for having it is that that moment of walking into a room where everybody's black and everybody's in the industry and these are people that you can you can build with you can talk to let your hair down right and and both for reasons of comfort but also for reasons of 
like the the function of putting that together is to let people work together in a different way. After the Beard Awards two years ago, I think, which was a more inclusive set of winners, that's the right way to say it, there was some blowback or questioning, like, is it going to be a fad? You know, is this tokenism? Is this how sustainable is this? How did it happen? Being that you're at the unique intersection here, what's your thoughts on that? To be very frank, there have been a lot of internal conversations, like very serious internal conversations to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, that it is not a tokenist moment. Certainly, I am very invested in it not being tokenism. Perhaps I am a little more radical in my bent. Um, And you can even look at some of the op-eds around that, the people that were solicited for the op-eds around the awards. Some, you know, Tunde Wei, soliciting Tunde Wei, who is not a person that pulls punches, and publishing an op-ed on what he thinks, certainly shows the foundation's commitment um, to diversity not being a, a checkbox, but actually um, woven into the fabric of everything that we do. And certainly, as long as I am there, uh, I'll keep championing the, the cause for sure. And certainly, as long as Black Food Folks exists, right. you know, these conversations will continue to happen. And it's not just about one set of awards or right. one year or, or, or whatever. It's about the larger conversation in the food space, right? That's, okay, you did the story on the beginning, on the basics of soul food in February, but are you gonna, you know, next month when somebody has a more complicated story, are you gonna say, oh, but we just did a soul food story. Right. To that end, one of the things that we're advocating for is having the people who are making those decisions more representative because if you're doing a piece on black food or on black chefs or on anything of that kind, but like the assigning editor is white and the editor-in-chief is white and the designer is white and like everybody else in that whole space is white, then, you know, you, you have one story. It is still a trend piece until there's another story, until there's somebody who's actually in the institution, in, uh, in the publication, that is making those decisions. And in the meantime, if there's that institutional aspect, what we hope comes from this is the growth in in black media that, you know, makes those decisions, um, not just within the institution, but actually creates their own. Because that is how it becomes sustainable, is when the people that make those decisions look like us. What chef is doing work where you think their story is so much more nuanced than has been represented that we could talk about now? I'll say Johnny Rhodes um, from Indigo, Houston, who is using like preserving techniques to tell the stories of not only the enslaved Africans, but also like reconstruction, post-reconstruction, those kinds of techniques. But, you know, when he did his dinner at the Beard House, he actually brought a lawyer, unfortunately, I can't remember her name, who is an advocate for land sovereignty. As you know, there's been tremendous land loss In the African-American community, there's been a myriad of stories about that. And so they actually brought a woman who has been a victim of such land loss and also a lawyer who advocates for them. Their Instagram is f.a.r.m.s farms. And I can't remember her name, unfortunately, but um, she tells the story of land loss that's not just happening throughout the South, but also in California. Like, that's a big story. Right. Um, 
you know, the there was an article about black mentorship. Right. Yes. I read that piece. Mm-hmm. It doesn't break new ground in a way. Like, we all need mentors who look like us. But the question that it brought up in my mind that I wanted to ask you was, okay, I'm a cisgender white woman. What role would I play as a mentor? Like, what's even possible? And, I mean, it's a question I would ask myself without having seen that piece, but that makes it sort of more poignant to me. I wonder if you have an answer to that, like a a thought about that. Well, I think... um I think what I could personally say about that is that there's certainly roles that mentors that don't look like us can play, and a lot of chefs that we know have mentors that did not look like them. And not just chefs. I mean, yeah. I had what mentors as right. well. Same, photography. you know, same, you know, my whole life. Um, I think a lot of different people have a lot of different things to offer. I think what is important, especially in this day and age, is that if somebody asks you to mentor them, it's very important to see that person as a whole human being. And that has not been the case for people of color for a very long time. Um, You know, often we are, you know, a checkbox and and people come with a set of assumptions about our wants, needs, and thought processes. So I think it's very important that if you are mentoring somebody who is not the same as you, to examine first your own thoughts, ideas, um, and prejudices walking into the situation. Because what you do affects how somebody sees themselves, how somebody can carry themselves through the world. And that can happen whether that person is 8 or 80. Before we get too far into that, I just want to make sure we note that the article is written by Angela Burke of Black F&B, who's based in Chicago, and um, also talking about black folks in food and beverage, and who, you know, is doing, doing great work, not just in the sort of area that we're working in, but also, like, the story for either. It was a great piece. Julia Turshin's Equity at the Table. We love her. Yes, yes. Definitely one of our inspirations. Comes to mind. Mm -hmm. And Equity at the Table is essentially a database that's a resource for people who are looking um, for all kinds of people in the food industry who are queer, people of color. It's an incredible database. Is that something that you would consider doing? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. In Uh fact... I have to say that another of the inspirations for all this was equity table is great, but I don't, there's no space for me there. Right. And that's, you know, that's fine. But seeing that. Sorry, because it's women. I didn't say that. Right. 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 And so seeing that and seeing the work that was being done there and what a great idea it was, part of the reason that I was thinking about something like this was because it's hard to say that. Black men are, are are overrepresented. No, exactly. In, in the food space, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I could go and like harangue Julia and those people about, hey, what about me? Or I could just build my own damn right. thing. And there's no need for her to be representing me when I can I can work on something myself and help other people who are like me. It just helps. It helps us all. Um, right. The more like that. resources that we have, the more resources we have to pull from, the better it right. is for everyone. Exactly. On each episode of Speaking Broadly, I ask my guests to give a shout out broadly to a woman who inspires them and someone who you want everyone to know about. Colleen? The problem is you're asking me for one woman and I have <laughs> several. She so Clay, Clay told me that I could only do one. Well... But I am... I'll, I'll let you do three. I, okay, good. That's perfect. Because yes, Clay will keep one of them. So, yes. Yes. so Latoya Meaders, 
who's from Brownsville Culinary Community Center and actually is the person that created the Black Food Folks logo and gave it to us. Yeah. Um, certainly is a person that inspires me. What does she do there? So she was she a designer director, of, a- director of operations, and now she's uh, started a catering company, Community Catering Fair. And then um, I also wanted to give a shout-out to Therese Nelson from BlackCulinaryHistory.com, who is certainly an inspiring person and also a close personal friend of mine and a wonderful steward for Black culinary history. And, you know, just continues to learn and 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 grow and and everything she says is like a gem and she's just a wonderful resource and then the third person i'm going to mention is davida davidson from food lab detroit who is a dynamo and just she's a preacher she is a preacher she's a preacher's daughter and she's absolutely brilliant and just like her energy and her commitment to this industry is unmatched and her mind is just absolutely brilliant. Tavita, we love you. She's yes. she's yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah. Of the three I happen to know. Yes. Right. So you still you still have one clay. Yes. Yeah. Um Colleen gave me this whole list and was like, wait, but then I don't have anybody. Well, I mean there are plenty of people, but most importantly to me is Nicole Taylor, the executive editor for food uh, at Thrillist. We came up together, um, we've known each other for quite a while now. And she is the great connector. Right. Everyone's heard, oh, you don't know Colleen? You gotta know Colleen. Yeah. Like, she's always <laughs> the one making the introductions. Right. She was always the one connecting people. And whenever I thought about how I could help anybody, it was always following Nicole's path of this person needs to know that person or these people should work together. Just that example of paying it forward, of mentoring, of assisting is everything about like the decisions I've made uh, going forward. <laughs> is there a product that you think is better than the hype? Hot sauce. Sorry. I've been putting it on everything now. Do you uh, have a particular um, maker? So right now it's uh, Lilies of Charleston. It's a family-owned brand, and I have been putting it on specifically on my, my mashed potatoes. It's heat, but it's sweet and spicy, and um, it's a small family-owned business. I'm actually talking about going to Charleston to visit her. She came through one of um, the James Beard Foundation Owning It programs, but she... uh, What's her name? Her name is um, Tracy Richardson, and um, the bottle is really cute. And, you know, I, I love these kind of, like, indie food producers that... I can't necessarily find everywhere, but she sent me like a sampling of her products and I actually really like them. And I'm working my way through them right now. So the one that I have right now is um, low country hot sauce. Um, I'm gonna go in an entirely different direction and be off uh, food and okay. um, and say like the thing I sort of can't live without is my uh, Beats wireless earbuds. <laughs> it's a, honestly, it's a New York survival technique is blocking out like the rest of the world when you need to. And I always wonder how we, the two of us even talk to people. Like we're yeah. both like, no, no, we're not going to yeah. talk to anybody. Yeah, no. <laughs> not on the, certainly not on the subway and right. on the street. I just need to turn it all off. Right. Well, with that, we conclude this episode of Speaking Broadly. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for, Thanks having, for us. having us. I, I love hearing about 
black food folks and what you're doing for the community, but also for the rest of us who get the benefit of the larger uh, programming that you're doing. So if people want to find you, how can they find you? So at black food folks, obviously on on Instagram Instagram and And Twitter. Twitter. Yes. On and Twitter. Um, although more fun on Instagram, um, my personal profile is miss that's M S underscore Kali call C O L L Y C O L. And I am uh, at Ultra Clay on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Instagram, much more fun. Twitter, more, you know, Twitter-ish. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Jeet, for being an amazing engineer. Thank you, Nina, without whom I could not exist. Thanks, all of you, for listening. If you like what you hear, rate, review, subscribe, enjoy again, and we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.